I stand in awe of the God of heaven who designed the plan to save man. I am in deep appreciation for holy men like the Apostle Paul who were so dedicated to preaching and teaching God's message. As you and I have been studying from the book of Ephesians, we realize the Apostle Paul was in prison. While he is in prison, he writes letters to three churches. He writes a letter to the Philippians to remind them of the joy, the happiness that they have being Christians. He writes a letter to the Colossians in which it is his goal to try to get them to appreciate Jesus, who he is, and all that he has done for us. And then he writes the Ephesians. According to chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, So that you do not lose heart. Can you imagine, here is a man in prison, writing to Christians, telling them, don't lose heart, don't give up, don't be discouraged. This morning we're going to study together Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 8, going through verse 12. By way of introduction, I want to point out to you that the theme of the book of Ephesians is the church of Christ. The church of Christ. When I say that, some may think that I'm talking about a denomination. I am not. The church of Christ is not a denomination. In fact, that very phrase indicates what the body is and to whom it belongs. It is a church. That is a called out group of people called out of the world into his kingdom and then to enjoy the wonderful blessings that are a part of it. It is the church of Christ because it belongs to him. It is his church, his body. No one can carefully study the book and not realize just how important the church was to God. In fact, if you read this book, you come away with an appreciation of the fact that God worked together a marvelous plan to bring this church into existence. You cannot help but see the fact that Jesus, the Christ, had such a great appreciation for the church that he died for it, Acts 20, verse 28. And every faithful Christian loves the church. And has a great appreciation for it. In fact, I hope that this lesson, when we finish, causes you to have a greater appreciation for everything that has been done on our behalf. Let me tell you, that's what maturity really is. Many of you can remember as a child growing up and you go to the refrigerator or the pantry, so to speak, and then you open up and there's all kinds of food in that refrigerator or that pantry. Whether it is your mother, your father who slaved hard to grow a garden and then canned all these items. Or parents who were able to work hard and purchase those things. As a child you would go and open the 
closet doors and look in and see all these clothes that are there and you really don't think about them. But as you get older, you begin to realize how much work went into providing all of those things. That's maturity. At some point in time, when you become a Christian, you say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. But as you grow in maturity, as you grow in the Lord, you begin to realize all that went in to making the church what it is and why we ought to appreciate it. We're going to look at three things in these verses. The first one will be the imparting of the Word of God. The second will be the intent that God had in His plan. And then number three, the interest of those who are important in God's sight. Now let's, let's begin, first of all. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. To me who am less than the least of all saints was this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which for ages or which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. I want you to key on that phrase, this grace was given that I should preach. This grace was given that I should preach. Preaching is not a right, it is a privilege. I know people sometimes laugh and mock and say, well, if I can't do anything else, then I guess I can preach. I've heard that said, you know, I'll just... Uh, I'll give up being a truck driver. I'll give up being a plumber. I'll give up being a factory worker. I can go to preaching as if that's not really a hard task. But you see, in God's sight, it's not something, and Paul is emphasizing, it's not something that I can just do at will. It is a privilege extended by God. Let me point out to you the difference in some words here. As you read through your Bibles, there are two common words that are translated preach. The first one is the word caruso, like Robinson Caruso. The word caruso means to announce, not necessarily something spiritual, but to announce something. You could be the town crier who goes and makes announcements. That would be the word used here to preach. On this occasion, in this passage, the preaching, though, is the word from which we get our word evangelize. And it means to announce good news or to announce the gospel, the divine message of salvation. That's different. Paul said, to me who am less than the least of all saints was this grace given that I should preach the gospel. You're not just imparting news, you're imparting saving news. As such, every faithful proclaimer of God's Word feels unworthy and inadequate. I'm not worthy to be able to preach God's Word. 
I am a fallible human being. Paul would look at himself and say, I'm not worthy to be a preacher of the gospel. Inadequate? Paul, as we study in the book of 2 Corinthians, asked the question, and who is sufficient for these things? And he gets in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, not that we have any sufficiency from ourselves. No one who stands before an audience and preaches the gospel feels that he's worthy to do so. Or that he has the adequacy of himself. He's humbled by the seriousness of the task. We're not announcing to people the directions how to cook certain kind of foods. We're not talking to people about for instance, the weather or psychology, we're talking about the salvation of men's souls. Whether you will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And the seriousness of the task means that if I do not preach the gospel, I shall be held accountable. I want to give you two or three verses that I believe will be helpful. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12, says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Although formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, howbeit I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I didn't deserve the privilege of preaching because I was a bad man. But God's grace was given to Paul and Paul was privileged to preach. As you think about one who does preach... And understands it, James would put it this way, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing we shall receive the stricter judgment. When one preaches God's word, he must be very careful because if he leads someone astray, he bears the guilt of that. That means that everyone who does this has to realize this is not my message, this is God's message, and it is serious. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God didn't say commit these things to just anybody he said, you commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God expects that those who preach and impart his will have that kind of attitude. But then Paul says that this grace was given to me that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are some things that you can count their value. If I had here five pounds of gold, you could calculate their value. If I had a sack of, of diamonds of various sizes and various carats, you could measure them out and say, this is worth so much. 
But when you start talking about the value of just one soul, your soul, what would a man be profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? When you start thinking about that, you can understand why Paul says, This grace was given that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. All men are given this privilege. Listen to Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Now let me move quickly to my second part of the lesson. The intent. If you'll turn with me now to verses 10 and 11. Very important verses. To the intent now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The words to the intent are translated from a real short Greek word. In fact, to the intent comes from a four-letter word, henna. And it means in order that. That's the reason why you say there's intent here. There's a plan. If you go down to verse 10, he talks about the eternal purpose. We have to realize that God had an intent. Everything that we do, we have some intentions behind it. If you go up and say good morning to someone, you have an intent. You want to greet them. If you go up and you make a snide remark about someone's clothing or something else, you have an intent in your mind. God had an intent in what he was doing. He had an eternal purpose. God's purpose and plan was concealed until the revelation of the mystery. It's as if God had a curtain up here. Or if you want to talk about it from 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, he had a veil. And the idea was you can't see what's behind it. And then all of a sudden the veil is removed. The, the curtain is removed. And what do you see? Look at verse 5. In other ages was not made known. That's previously. Look at verse 9. Has been hidden. That's very clear. Verse 10. Now might be made known. What he is saying is God's plan was always there. It's just everybody didn't see it. They didn't know what it was. They didn't understand it. Now you Ephesians, and by way of, of extension, you folks at Bobby Branch know that God had a plan and how he intended to bring it to pass. This intent 
was that God's manifold wisdom be known. Let's key on that for just a second. Manifold. The word manifold means multifaceted. You think again of a diamond. If you take a diamond and look at it carefully, it's not just flat, but it has little facets on the corners. And every time you look at it, you get a different view from a different perspective. God is not one-dimensional. God doesn't just have one thing going. He has several things going. That's the reason why when someone asks, Are you saved by grace? Yes. Are you saved by grace alone? No. Are you saved by faith? Yes. Are you saved by faith alone? No. Because there's so many things that go into God's divine plan. Multifaceted. Now, if you don't listen to anything else, I want you to concentrate on this particular part. Made known by or through the church. This manifold wisdom of God, this multifaceted wisdom that God has is made known by the church. There's two different ways you could take that. You could say that it refers to the church making known God's wisdom. That is, we preach it, we teach it. And we know that according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar is the upright supports. The ground is the foundation. In other words, the church is supposed to uphold the truth. We're supposed to be the preachers of truth. We're supposed to be the teachers of God's will. But, I don't think that's what he has reference to here. More likely, it refers to the very existence of the church. God's wisdom created, designed, planned, and brought about the church. The reason why I say that is because if you look, it's in the passive voice, which would indicate that it's something that's being done to the church, not that it's something the church is doing, which would be the active voice. Well, what does the church say? It says that God is able to take people from diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures, and bring them all together in one body that's going to last. Not one that just is here today and gone tomorrow. You know, our country is one that is based upon being a melting pot. That is, we bring people from all cultures and we find the United States. Problem is, all of us know we're not very united. But now I want you to look at God's plan. I'm just going to choose a couple of verses. Isaiah 2, 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains and be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. It's going to come from everywhere. There will be Ethiopians that will become Christians. Acts 8. The eunuch there, the treasurer. It will involve people from Asia, Minor, which country of Turkey today, 
just so happens that Ephesus and Colossae are there. It'll involve Greeks, the country of Greece, included places like Athens and Corinth. It's going to go further west, and you'll have people in Rome obeying the gospel. Folks, let me tell you something. That was a body that had people from all cultures coming into it. Then you go to Daniel 2 and verse 44, and the prophecy there, Daniel said, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom will be not left to other people. And it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. You see, we're not dealing with a temporary kingdom, but an eternal kingdom. How could God bring all of this to pass and they all fit together in a unified body? That's just part of showing the multifaceted wisdom of God. Time forces me to move on to the third part. I will tell you that when I read the Bible, I try my best to gather as much information as possible. But I would say that you're very likely like me, that you'll read a passage over and over again. You have in your mind what it's saying, and there's usually words or phrases in there that you just skipped over and you've not really paid a lot of attention to. I want to key on verse 10 for just a moment, if you will. To the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Notice that. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There's some questions that come up in your mind. Two key questions. Number one is, who are these principalities and powers? You ever thought about who they are? Where are the heavenly places? He says, in the heavenly places. And then I can think of a third question that's going to come to my mind is, and what interest do they have in the mystery of God and in the church? You know, sometimes people are interested in things, sometimes people are not. I can look out this morning. I can tell some people are very interested in what I'm saying. Some of you are sleeping. Some of you are interested in other things. There's some interest here. There's an interest in what's happening. Well, let's see who are the principalities and the powers. The pair of words is found five times in the Bible. I can't explore all of them with you, but let me explore just some. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see it's in a list of things there that are very important. So I go and I say, well, let me look at the book of Ephesians itself and see how Paul uses it there because he's going to talk about them again in chapter 6, verse 12. And he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's something I know now. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's physical. Flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against it. But what we do wrestle against is the principalities and against the powers. And if you'll notice, he says, spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. I think Paul is helping me focus a little clearer who this is. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in the heaven, that are on the earth, whether visible or invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. Now what I understand is there are things that God created here. There are things that God created in the spiritual realm, in heaven. Go to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Having wiped out the handwriting of ordinances or requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, you know what he did? He showed Satan lost. Satan lost. And all the spiritual forces of wickedness lost. So what that forces me to do is to understand this is the spiritual realm. Most likely, the wicked fallen angels, because it's things not of this creation, not of flesh and blood. It's of the spiritual realm in the heavenly places. The adjective heavenly describes the character or location of a person or a person. Like, for instance, our Heavenly Father, talking about where God is at. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 20, He is now seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 6, He's made us sit together with Him in the heavenly places. That's not of this world, not of this realm. Now I ask the question, what interest would fallen angels have in the church and the blessings that come from it? Folks, do you realize we have something that other people want, they're interested in? They care about it. Let me give you a couple passages of Scripture and then we'll draw this to a close. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter is going to say... Look back at what those prophets did. He says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully of the grace that would come to you. Searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they have been ministering these things which have now been preached or reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven 
Now notice that last phrase, which things angels desire to look into. All the way back, Isaiah 2.2, we looked at it. Daniel 2.44, it was not during their day. They were looking forward to the coming of these blessings, the glories that would follow. But the last thing Peter says, there's, there's some people interested in this. And then the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to the seed of angels, or give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. God doesn't help angels like he helps us. Jesus did not die for the angels. There's not a church for the angels. What happened to them? 2 Peter 2, 4. For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for the judgment. I see something. They're interested in being saved. I understand why they want the church. One should greatly appreciate all that has been done for the salvation of man. If I have been able to focus your attention for just a few moments on what Paul was trying to stress, that is, God had his word imparted by means of the preaching of the gospel to explain his intent that is made known by the church and the interest that people have in it. God has provided the church as his vessel of safety. Just like the ark. Noah, Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives, eight of them, got on that ark. They were saved from the flood. You obey the Lord, you get into the church, there's a vessel of safety so that you can make it to heaven. One must be a part of that church in order to enjoy the blessings of heaven. What Jesus demands of us is that we believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 8, verse 24. That we confess his name before men, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. That we repent of our sins, Luke 13, verse 3, verse 5, and be baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. If you've not yet done that, you need to do it this morning. Be a part of that wonderful body of the church. When we sing the invitation song, you come forward, sit up here on the front pew, and we'll allow you to make your good confession and then baptize you into the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you're one of his straying children, it's time to come home. Would you come as we stand inside?